Amen, church. I am so excited to continue our story, our study, our journey through the book of Daniel. And uh, as we continue to study these chapters, you're going to see constant threads and themes. And as we come to Daniel chapter 3, we get to study one of the most beloved stories in all of Scripture. So I am, as your pastor, just straight up giddy this morning as we talk about fiery furnaces. So many of us know this, many of us know this, that we like fire to a certain degree, right? We like fire when it's in our little chiminea in our backyard and we're roasting marshmallows and we're cooking up s'mores. We like fire when it's cooking our food. We like fire when it's giving us heat and warmth, but we don't like to touch fire. We don't like too much heat, and obviously we all know the devastating impact that fire can have. It is a almost unstoppable force once it becomes a blazing inferno. What we're going to see here in this passage is that, yes, obviously we're going to be reminded of a story of three young Jewish men who survived the fire in the furnace, but the benefit of studying a book like the book of Daniel, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is you are reminded of the context, the pretext, reminded of how all of these things connect together and what their significance is. So before we dive into Daniel chapter 3, let's take a look at the end of Daniel chapter 2, and we will be reminded of who the key players in this story are. After Daniel had interpreted the king's dream, after Daniel had rightly told King Nebuchadnezzar not only the dream itself, but also its right interpretation, something truly astounding happens, and the dictator, the emperor, Nebuchadnezzar, gives glory to God. Let's look at it, shall we? Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is something that would have created a hush. This is something that everyone in the king's court and then everyone hearing about this story in the king's kingdom would have been altogether amazed because King Nebuchadnezzar just fell face down and gave God glory. So you might think to yourself after this experience and after Nebuchadnezzar's outward expression of worship of the one true God, the God of heaven, that Nebuchadnezzar all of a sudden is a believer in Yahweh. 
Nebuchadnezzar is a follower of Yahweh. But what we're going to see is that even though he had conviction over the power of Daniel's God to interpret dreams, conviction isn't always conversion. Conviction isn't always conversion. Because what we're going to see here from chapter 2 to chapter 3 is that the same man that fell down on his face to worship Daniel's God is now going to decree that everyone in his empire fall down and worship him and his gods. See how this works? The same man that just had a dream about a statue and he was the golden head of the statue is now going to create a golden monument and erect it so people would know his power and the glory of his gods. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was wowed by God, but he wasn't changed by God. Nebuchadnezzar was feeling distraught and disturbed because he couldn't interpret his dream. Do you remember what the dream was? This was the scariest dream that any dictator could have. That he who was in power would one day soon not be in power. That there would be a king after him and a king after him and a king after him. And in the end, there would be a king that his kingdom would never end. So perhaps we can relate to this. Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed. He was distraught. And he was content, it would seem, to just have a fix-it Jesus. And he was not ready to put his faith in Jesus. This happens all the time. We cry out for forgiveness. We cry out for providence. We cry out for intervention. We cry out for God to work, and sometimes he does. But we're only interested in a fix-it Jesus. We're not putting our faith in Jesus. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his hubris and pride is going to be on full display in Daniel chapter 3. And we know this, don't we, church? Unchecked pride leads to unthinkable pain. Unchecked hubris leads to unhealthy families, lives, towns, and countries. Nebuchadnezzar's pride has not been put in check. In fact, he's about to erect a golden monument so that everybody would know, regardless of Daniel's dream, or I should say Daniel's interpretation, that Nebuchadnezzar will not share his king, his kingdom, or the future of his kingdom with any other person or deity. Let's look at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Real quick, just to give you a little bit of an understanding of what that means. We're not sure where Dura is, but it's probably close to the capital. What's more interesting is the size. When the Bible says it's 60 cubits, we tend not to use that as a measuring, but it's about 90 feet tall. So think of it this way. How many people have uh, have seen uh, the new Hope Tower at Jersey Shore Medical? You've driven past Hope Tower. You've seen it. So 90 feet is about nine stories. Hope Tower is about 10 stories high. So next time you drive past Hope Tower, this monument wasn't led to give people hope, but it was led to instill fear. 
but the size of it is about the size of that tower. It's about 90 feet high. Verse 2. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Once again, giving you some context. Who's he inviting? The VIP list. He wants everyone of power, affluence, and influence to gather around his big monument. Now, if you look at images of this as it's depicted in artwork throughout church history, oftentimes it's depicted as a big golden statue. Now, this chapter doesn't necessarily tell us what the the monument is. I tend to think that those paintings, those artistic descriptions are accurate. Why? Because the vision and the dream that I think Nebuchadnezzar is reacting to, is responding to, was a statue of a man with him as the golden head. So I do believe, even though it would be a very narrow statue, I do believe that this is a statue of himself giving glory to his gods. So as they all gather around people of influence, Nebuchadnezzar says, no, remember who's in charge. Remember, as Tony Danza used to say, who's the boss? It's Nebuchadnezzar. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to what? Fall down. Remember that from the previous chapter? You're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Let's pause right there. What we see here, believe it or not, is multi-layered. There's a lot going on here. It's first and foremost idolatry. These three young Jewish men know the Lord's commandments. In fact, they know what we call the Ten Commandments. Do you remember what the first two of the Ten Commandments are? Worship the Lord your God alone, and then do not worship any man-made idols. Do not worship any images. They understand that. They get that. Now, when we think about our own personal lives, and you've heard me teach this before, that when we think of the Ten Commandments, yes, we often confess our lying We often confess our coveting, how we sometimes use the Lord's name in vain. Sometimes we even fall into greater sins, like adultery. Whatever reason, these first two commandments are off our radar screen. We hardly ever confess to God, God, forgive me of my idolatry. Forgive me that I have allowed this counterfeit Savior to have more influence of my heart, to have power over my affections than you do, King Jesus. So this is what idols do. Ready? It's all right here. And by the way, it happens over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Idols are big and shiny, aren't they? Idols, oh, this is important now, listen, attract the culture's attention. 
all the people of power. Look at the places of influence in our culture, whether it be academia, whether it be media, whether it be politics, often not too Christ-centered. Is that by accident? No. What we see here is a reminder that idols tend to be big and shiny, and the whole culture is chasing after them. And they tend to promise health, wealth, and length of life. Oh, but they don't deliver. And then double O, if you do not surrender to your idol. Destruction. This is why people in the United States of America who have the money, people who have the freedom, people who haven't even had the family and the health still see no hope out of their pit. And they are forced, it would seem, in the darkness of this moment when their idol is destroyed, that they don't see how life is worth living anymore and they decide to take their own lives. You see, this is what idolatry does. When we place our identity and our security, our satisfaction and salvation in any created thing, when that thing is gone, we have no hope left. This is what idols do. Look at the big shiny stick. It's gold. Everybody else is doing it. The whole culture's going after it. And by the way, if you don't, you're going to lose your life. We need to be discerning, church. Right? We need to wake up and see that this isn't just the issue today. This has always been the issue. That the enemy, while it would seem he's very effective in reaching a secular culture, he's not coming up with anything new. We should be surprised by this. We should be a discerning people. So the edict is given that whoever does not worship the idol and give homage to Nebuchadnezzar will be thrown into the fiery furnace. The same man who just fell down in worship of Yahweh is now saying, if you don't fall down and worship me and my gods, there will be consequences. You see the residue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream playing itself out. He refuses to let anyone have his throne. He refuses to let anyone else wear his crown. He refuses to surrender his power to all the kings that the dream said would come. Now, there's also other residue of the dream. You guys ever have dream residue? I just came up with a term. You can use it. You ever have a dream where, like, you get into a fight with somebody in your dream and you wake up, and you're like mad at them all day. <laughs> and it's so wrong, because they didn't do anything to you. You just had like anchovy and pepperoni pizza at like 10 p.m., and just had awful dreams. It's not their fault, but you're just mad at them all day. Gosh, just annoying me. Sometimes our dreams carry over into our wakefulness, right? So I think, just to, just to place your hopes on this as we continue to Follow the story. Nebuchadnezzar's pride was ignited. There's residue here. Because what happened? He marveled at the interpretation, and then he rebelled against its reality. My point is simply this, is that these three men heard of a king that would come. These three men heard after 
that the Babylonian Empire would end, and the Persian Empire would end, and the Grecian Empire would end, and the Roman Empire would end, they heard of a king who would come whose kingdom would never end. So they're about to make a very bold, dramatic stance of faith, trusting not only in the God of the Torah, but trusting in the king that would come later on. So what we see here now as we move from verses 7 all the way through verses 12, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, the magicians, there's a conspiracy to try and thwart the ministry and influence of these three Jewish men because these three young Jewish men refuse to bow. They refuse to bow their knee. They will not worship the idols. So they use this language, if you want to look at it, even as we kind of skim through it. They say, O king, live forever. They refer to Nebuchadnezzar as king. They're trying to puff up his ego. But they're also very, very subtle in their deception. Notice in verse 12, they say this. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, O king, our king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice their you-ness. Are the Chaldeans really concerned about the king and his glory? No, they're jealous. They're envious that these three men have risen up, these Jewish men have risen up in a place of influence greater than theirs. Why did the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders of Jesus' time, so violently tried to thwart his ministry and his message, it says over and over again, because they were jealous. Self-righteous people tend to be the most self-centered people. And because they're self-centered people, they can't stand sharing any kind of glory with anyone else. They are, and sometimes, let's be honest, we are so jealous and so envious when anyone gets ahead of us, here's a conspiracy. We're taking these three guys out. It's in this context that we have three young men, probably 18, 19, 20 years old, make a stand that I think many of us would probably shy away from. Let's look at the, God's word, shall we? Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought so they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who's, who is the God, lowercase g, who will deliver you out of my hands? Stop right there. Worship is mentioned 11 times in this chapter. This is not about a king. This is not about Babylon. This is not about Nebuchadnezzar. It's not about a furnace, and it's even not about Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego. It's all about the battle of the gods. The battle of the gods that's been waging ever since the Garden of Eden. The battle that continues here in the Garden State. 
Which God will you worship? And in the end, if we aren't in a literal furnace, but we feel like we're walking through this fiery season, whose God can save you? Now, in the United States of America, we don't necessarily bow down, fall on our face, and pay homage to big golden statues. But yes, if we're honest with ourselves, we're looking for gold to save us. It's printed on our money in God we trust. And yet, it's really in the trust of money that is our God. Many of us, right? This is where we live, is it not? We're hoping that our God can deliver us from that fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is calling them out. And in calling them out, he's calling out their God. Verse 16, this is good stuff, folks. Let's pay attention. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that Beasties Boys song that they used that light works? 9 a.m. service? No. Okay, let's keep reading. Shadrach, Meshach. There you are. You're welcome back. Thank you. And Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Oh, now listen, church. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden idol that you have set up. Wow. Did you know that an industrial furnace is about 400 degrees? 400 degrees. How many of us were complaining last week when it was like 78 degrees with 98% humidity in October? We were like, oh, this is awful. The oppression. I hate this. My life is the worst. This fire is going to get so hot that it's going to say that not just men, but the strongest men in Nebuchadnezzar's army get consumed by just standing near it. If an industrial furnace is 400 degrees, I would times that by probably five. So much so that the heat is something that they can feel on their face, even as they are maybe 50 yards away. What would we say? If you were in that position, what would we do? You see, what these men understood is that worldly success is no substitute for spiritual integrity. They understood what Paul would later say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Holy cow, if there's one verse that completely rocks our cultural expectation of what the good life is, it's that. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. One pastor put that as the win-win scenario. The win is to live for Christ is the greatest experience. Jesus said, it's life and life to the full. And then to die in Christ, then you get to be with him forever and ever. It's win-win. A lot of us, we would see this as uh, lose-lose. In fact, the worst imaginable loss. Oh, this is why church is important, is it not? Friends, we come back, we're reminded of what truly matters. We're reminded of what's truly going on. And hopefully, in the same way that the Lord tried to reach Nebuchadnezzar and woke him from his slumber, that the Lord can wake us from our slumber. 
Because these men understood that worldly success is no substitute for spiritual integrity. They were more interested in obedience than even deliverance. Do you hear what they said? They said, our God is able to save us, but if he's not, he's still good. Job would later say, or Job said earlier, even though he slay me, still will I trust in him. Spoiler alert, God's going to save him. And it's awesome. Even if he didn't, is God still God? Is God still good? The truth is this. Is there are plenty of times where God doesn't deliver the person. All of the apostles of the church, except for you could argue John, were martyred for their faith. They paid the ultimate price. Peter even put it like this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's suffering. Rejoice in as far as you share in Christ's suffering. That you may rejoice and what? Be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. The spirit of glory and God rests upon you even if obedience means you have to walk into the fire. That's what these men are about to do. Let's take a look. They make this declaration. And what happens from verses 19 all the way down to verses 23 is that these three men are thrown into the fiery furnace. Let's pick up the story in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselor, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Listen, church. Listen to these words. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. You can tell why I'm giddy. They're unbound, unburned, unfazed, and not alone. The Bible talks about theophanies. It's a term we use to describe God manifesting himself physically. I don't believe this is a theophany. I believe this is a Christophany. Before Christmas, Christ entering in to this world in that fiery furnace, so much so that even Nebuchadnezzar says, this is like a what? Son of the gods. Astounding. Isaiah would say this. Hear these words and be encouraged. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God is faithful to his promises. 
Our God is walking with us in the flame. Our God is here beside us. No matter what you may be going through. Oh, this is good news. How this doesn't lead to the exaltation and worship of our good Savior Christ. I don't know how we could not be changed and touched and moved by this. Because once again, a dictator is about to be. What we see here in this story is that they take them from the fire. And there's not only no burns, but the hairs on their heads were not singed. I'm in verse 27. Their cloaks were not harmed. And there's no smell of fire had even come upon them. When Jesus saves, he saves entirely and completely. Amen? And now the king makes this decree. Therefore, I'm in verse 29. I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So you think that Nebuchadnezzar might start getting it and he might start understanding what this is all about. He makes a decree and you're like, all right, a decree. And then he threatens to rip everybody's limbs off. He's not getting it yet, but he does understand this, and this is enough, that this God is able to rescue in a way that no other God can. Who and what, church, are you putting your, play, your hope, your security, your salvation in to help you in times of heat and pressure, fire? And consequence. There is no other God who is able to rescue like our own. Not only is He able to deliver us, He's also in the fire with us. That is beautiful, wonderful, good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God, and we thank you that it continues to speak where we are, to meet us where we are, and to remind us that you're here where we are. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak not only to our hearts, but you would also speak to our idols. That in the same way the cross of Christ and the blood that was spilt and the victory of the resurrection was powerful. Powerful to forgive. Powerful to liberate us from our enslavement to sin and to Satan. But God, help us to remember that our Jesus is powerful enough to deliver us from our idols. Oh, give us courage, God. Give our kids courage, our teenagers, our 20-somethings. Give our men some courage, God. Help the men in this room this morning. Look at these three Hebrew men who are put in a place of influence. And we're not willing to sacrifice their personal spiritual integrity for success and comfort. 
But Lord, in the end, the most encouraging truth is that you're with us. As Paul would later say, if God, the one true God, is with us, then who or what could possibly ever be against us? Hallelujah. Oh, would you open your heart? Would you turn from sin? And would you return to Jesus this morning? Holy Spirit, we pray. Do that work.